Amen. Thank you, John. Well, today's a little bit different day uh, for us here in the church, and uh, I'm not doing a sermon per se, but uh, doing a reflection on general conference that took place last week in the Methodist church. And I have had a hard time trying to figure out what I was going to say this morning, and I still don't know for sure what I'm going to say this morning. In fact, I sat down several times to write out what I was going to say and, uh, and scrapped it several times and could never get past the first page. So I uh, constantly read and did many things, uh, but s- decided to just write down some notes, and hopefully God will guide us as we walk through this uh, time together. But, uh, and here's the problem that I've had uh, as I've tried to put together what I want to say is when I come to you this morning, we have people who know nothing about the United Methodist Church that are here in this this morning in the, in the sanctuary and how we operate, and those who might be geeks like me who know a lot more. And, and so how do I talk to that broad range and, and help us understand where we find ourselves as a church today, this day? So let me start by saying this. Our general conference, uh, which is our uh, voting body of the church, met last week uh, and, and to decide and to discuss the issue of human sexuality and specifically homosexuality. Uh, And we voted the traditional plan, which is basically what our discipline currently states, uh, but with some more accountability. And so as I've said multiple times over the past couple of years, this uh, discussion that we've had and this uh, problem that we're facing and this divide that we have as a church The presenting issue is sexuality. Uh, But the deeper issue for me has always been, who is Jesus, what is scripture, and what is the purpose of the church? And that's really what we've been debating. But we've couched it all in language of human sexuality, and specifically homosexuality. And so, before we can move forward, I have to take us backwards so that we understand how we operate as a church. Now, this is the part I like to do is teaching. I like to tell you about how we're operating and all those things. And then, uh, but as we get further towards the end, uh, I'll I'll give more reflections on general conference. People keep asking me and and talking to me and say, well, well, who won at general conference? Who won? Did, Did we win or did they win? And my answer is nobody won. And especially Jesus He didn't win either. Uh, It was a brutal conference. Some of you watched it. Uh, I'm glad you're still here this morning, if you did, Uh, because it was tough. It was tough. But let me go back so to help you understand who we are as Methodists. So the United Methodist Church was formed in what year? Staff members yelling out, yeah. 1968. That's right. We were formed from two different denominations primarily, the United Brethren Church and the Methodist Church. So that's where we got the United from United Brethren and Methodist, United Methodist. But our history goes all the way back to John and Charles Wesley, who were a part of the, Ang- they were priests in the Anglican Church, and they were seeking to revive the Anglican Church, the Church of England, in the 1700s. And then when that revival spread to America, it became the Methodist Church in America, and it swept across this land in America. And 
So we have had different splits and comings together over the years. Uh, we split at one time over slavery. Uh, and, and we've came back together over slavery again. And, and then various Methodist churches or strains of Methodism. We have many throughout the world. So if you know the Nazarene Church, the Wesleyan Church, the Church of God, Salvation Army, Free Methodist, thank you. Who else am I missing? The Pentecostal Movement, Assembly of God, all of those came out of the Wesleyan Movement. So those are all Methodist in theology in some sense. But they're not United Methodist, which is a specific denomination. And we are a part of the United Methodist Church, which is just about 50 years old. Uh, And so that's where we are and who we are. But since 1972, we have debated the issue of homosexuality at General Conference every four years, over and over again. Now, let me explain to you how we're structured so that you can understand how this all happens and how this all processes. So the Methodist Church, the United Methodist Church, is a global church. I don't know if you know that. We are the second largest global church, Protestant church. Um, We might be the first largest global church. Uh, But we're structured much like our United States government. We have three branches. Do you all know that? So let's start with what we would call the executive branch. You know, in our government, we have a president. Now, we don't have presidents, (laughs) but we have clergy. And so in the executive branch would be the clergy side. And so you start down at the bottom and you have local pastors and elders. I'm an elder in the United Methodist Church. I've been ordained to be a pastor in the United Methodist Church. And sometime, and we are a part of a district and a conference, and we'll go about into that in just a second. So pastors sometimes are, uh, a, we are appointed, you know that, by our bishop. And so they decide where we serve. And so uh, sometimes uh, elders are tapped to serve as a district superintendent. And then sometimes uh, elders are tapped to serve as bishops. We elect them. And bishops are over a conference. The only power that a bishop has, the duty of a bishop is to oversee a conference and to help the mission and ministry of that conference. And that bishop appoints clergy to the various churches. Make sense? That's what a bishop and district superintendent helps with that. He's, the district superintendent is part of the cabinet uh, of the bishop that helps in appointing clergy in a local church. That's the executive side. In the middle is our legislative, is our conference. And so if we start at the bottom, in a local church, it's called a charge conference. Why is it called a charge conference? Because Methodists love to use names that make no sense to anybody else. A charge conference is old language that just basically means back in the old days when pastors typically were on a horse and rode from church to church, their charge encompassed an area that would include several churches. Now, typically, a charge is one church. Sometimes you'll have a two-point or a three-point charge. Some of our, my friends have been a part of that, meaning they're, in char- they're a part of three churches. They pastor over three churches. But this is the charge, and we meet once a year at least as a charge conference to vote 
on budget, salaries, who our leadership is, etc. So that's the, the voting body of the church. It starts at the bottom, charge conference. We also have a district conference that meets once a year. And then we have an annual conference. We are a part of the Amarillo District, which is Canyon North in the Panhandle. We are a part of the Northwest Texas Annual Conference, which Midland, Abilene, North. And uh, so that annual conference is then made up of a jurisdictional conference. We're a part of the South uh, Central Jurisdiction. And then we are a part of the uh, General Conference which is the voting body of the United Methodist Church. Did I tell you that we're a global church? Does that make sense? So here we go. Church, district, annual conference, jurisdictional conference, general conference. You got the picture? You kind of figuring that out? Here's the thing I want you to understand. The only body that speaks officially for the United Methodist Church is general conference. Do I speak officially for the United Methodist Church? No. This morning is reflections on general conference, not what uh, officially happened. Do bishops speak officially for the United Methodist Church? No, only general conference. So general conference, we meet, praise God, only every four years. That was one good thing we decided as Methodists. We're not gonna meet every year. Presbyterians meet every year and that it kills them. Uh, we meet only every four years. Every four years. So every four years, we gather together as a global body and we have representatives from every annual conference around the world that comes together to meet in various places throughout the U.S. primarily for general conference. And if you can think of our legislature, America, you know, they have reps and senators. We have representatives from every annual conference. We vote on them at annual conference. This annual conference, Northwest Texas, in June, we will vote on our delegates who will represent us at General Conference 2020. So every annual conference has representatives. At this general conference we just had, we had 862 or four. I just lost it. I can't remember. Four. Thank you. 864 delegates from around the world who met. Again, thank Congress. Think about Congress. How political and divisive and weird it can get. Yeah, it was kind of like that. But what they do is they come together and they produce our book of discipline. This is our rule book. This is who we say we are. This is our, you know, what we hope to live up to. But it's not the only thing. Uh, that we use. We have three primary books that we uh, love. The Bible, the Book of Discipline, and the Hymnal. <laughs> Those are our books as a sense. But our, uh, our Book of Discipline. So if you don't know, we have a constitution at the beginning of the Book of Discipline. There it is right there. There's our constitution. And then we have certain doctrines that we say are our primary documents. We have our articles of religion, which says who we believe. We have our confession of faith. Both of those were taken from the United Brethren Church and the Methodist Church before we formed together. We also have our general rules. Church, what are our general rules? How many do we have? Three. <laughs> Three, yeah, you're going, yeah. What's the first one? Do no harm. What's the second one? Do good. Do good. What's the third one? 
attend upon the ordinances of God. You ready? Do no harm, do good, attend upon the ordinances of God. Those are our general rules. They were given to us by John Wesley himself. They're, sti- they're a part of our book of discipline. The other things that we take as uh, important foundational documents are John Wesley's notes on the New Testament and uh, his standard sermons, which gives us our flavor of theology, what we believe, how we do what we do. Those are foundational documents. Those cannot be changed in the United Methodist Church. Just like the United States has a constitution and amendments and foundational documents, we have the same as the United Methodist Church. So those things cannot change. Everything else, let me get to that. The rest of it is how we do what we do. How many people have to be in this committee? what we believe on certain things, so forth and so on. And that's typically what we're looking at and voting on. And, you know, insurance, pensions, all those exciting things. Uh, how we're going to serve and minister in the world. That's our book of discipline. And so we get a new book of discipline every four years. Make sense? Y'all tracking with me? Now, I didn't talk about the third branch. Our third branch is our judicial council. They operate like a Supreme Court would. And so as clergy... We can be brought up on charges and we could go and appeal to judicial counsel for ruling. At general conference, when they make rules, a lot of times they will ask judicial counsel to rule on that legislation they just passed to make sure it's constitutional. Does that make sense? Just like our government does, right? And they will say, yes, it's constitutional or no, it is not. And so that's how we operate. Three branches. I'm going somewhere. I'll get there eventually. Uh, so since 1972, this is our 1972 book of discipline, we have been arguing and debating over sexuality and specifically homosexuality. So here is what we currently state in our book of discipline. We say that all people are of sacred worth. Everybody created in the image of God. That all are welcome in the church. But we also say that the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. That's what our current book of discipline states. And that's what we've stated since 1972. So we balance this balance that we all have to between grace, all are sacred, all are welcome. And holiness. When we come to Christ, we're called to live like Christ and to begin to love like Christ and to act like Christ. So that's the balance. But we interpret scriptures differently, many people. And so that's been our debate that we've had for decades now. 2016, General Conference. Where'd we meet? I can't remember. Doesn't matter. (laughs) 2016, General Conference. This whole issue came to a head in 2016. The delegates found themselves kind of at an impasse. They reached out to the bishops and said, bishops, we need your help. Help lead us. So we put together a commission on a way forward made up of lay people and clergy 
of all different theological spectrums. And they have been meeting since about 2017 to help us find a way forward as a church. Where are we going to go forward? So they met and they came up with three primarily different plans to be presented to a special called general conference that would take place in 2019, the one that we just had. When's the last time we had a special called general conference? We haven't. This is the first one to deal with this one issue. This whole conference was around this one issue. There was no other issues to be discussed because we find ourselves at an impasse. And so the commission on a way forward, they came up with three different potential plans for us as a church. The first plan was called the One Church Plan. That's what it was named. It was the plan uh, supported by the majority of the bishops and several uh, delegates in the United States. The One Church Plan basically said every church and conference would decide for itself if they would uh, allow clergy to be self-avowed practicing homosexuals or if they would allow the church to uh, bless and consecrate and do marriages between gays. That was the one church plan. And see, that's what we're really debating at General Conference is can self-avowed practicing homosexuals be clergy and will we allow marriage of uh, same-sex partners in the church? That's... The, the crux of that presenting issue is what we're looking at. So that's the debate. So the three different plans. The one church plan just said each church would decide for itself how it would handle the issue. That was one church. The, the connectional conference plan, I'm simplifying this quite a bit. The connectional conference plan said that we would create three different branches with three different theologies liberal, conservative, moderate, with one council of bishops over all of it. That was going to require major constitutional amendments. The third plan was the traditional plan, which basically stated we would have the same discipline that we've had with the same language, but more accountability on those who violate the discipline. Does that make sense? Those were the three plans presented. You tracking with me? So that's where we were headed into. At 2016, the church asked for the whole body, bishops and everyone said, let's have peace until we call the special general conference. Let's not, let's not uh, put people on church trials. Let's not uh, push either side and let's just pray and, and, and work our way forward till 2019. Well, we didn't see that happen. We actually saw immediately the Western jurisdiction in California uh, consecrated an openly gay bishop immediately after general conference. Um, and we had many annual conferences and boards of ordained ministry say they would not follow the book of discipline. That was in 2016. And everyone, bishops who were even for that have just said, slow down, just let's have some breathing room until we discuss this in 2019. So fast forward till 2019, last week, we have our special called session of general conference that takes place in St. Louis. Delegates from around the world come and they vote. 
primarily on those three plans. There's other things. There's another couple of other plans that we would call a gracious exit plan. And what a gracious exit plan says is that any church that wants to leave because they can't abide by our discipline, we would give you an exit, a plan, a strategy for you to leave the Methodist church. The one thing I didn't tell you about the United Methodist Church is this has kind of been the sticking point is we were put together, we were stitched together as a church so that it's hard for us to become unstitched. Meaning our property, everything here is not owned by First United Methodist Church Canyon, Texas. It is owned by the conference. So for a church to leave, they cannot take their building and property because it's not owned by us. We hold it in trust. The conference holds it in trust. So that's part of that struggle. So we wanted to have a gracious exit plan for any who could not abide by the discipline, whatever it stated, after 2019. So 2019, we come, and what we saw at General Conference was the worst of the church. What we saw at General Conference uh, was terrible. I will tell you, the traditional plan passed, which gave more accountability to who we are and what we believe. So it's the same thing, basically, as what we have held since 1972. So people said, so we won. I say, no, we didn't win. There was no winning at General Conference. Everybody lost at General Conference because we saw a complete breakdown of holy conferencing is what we call it. That was anything but holy. You've seen Congress, the United States, our president, the Senate, Democrats and Republicans. Think that, but with people saying they're Christian. It was terrible. It was horrible. It was deplorable. And that makes me sad. We had, uh, we had delegates from the floor of large churches say, we will not allow this plan to pass. We will hold up conference so that nothing is passed. That is not holy conferencing. We had delegates call the other side names, terrorists, homophobes, virus, so forth and so on, from the conference floor. We had, uh, <laughs> there was chanting. There was bishops standing for and against different things. When bishops are not supposed to be doing that. They're supposed to help lead us, and they're supposed to be the non-anxious presence in the room that help us, and we saw bias that was very hurtful. So that's what we saw at General Conference. So we did pass a traditional plan, and we did pass a graceful exit. Here's the problem. The graceful exit was already deemed unconstitutional, so we don't know if it will go into effect. Parts of the traditional plan were deemed unconstitutional as well, we tried to put the amendments, we being those on the right like I am, tried to put the amendments in there to make it constitutional, but uh, the other side held up the whole conference so that it wouldn't be voted on. And those amendments were not called on. And those bishops would not call on those people who they knew would be putting those amendments to the floor, even though they were in the queue to be recognized. That's what we saw. And so... Where do we find ourselves today? I hope, well, here's where we find ourselves today. We are a deeply divided church. The vote for the traditional plan was 53, 46, 47. That's kind of where it has been. And that's where it has been for several decades probably now. It will continue, uh, the, the African delegates are the ones who are more conservative. 
They will gain 18 delegates this next year. So it will continue to be conservative. Uh, It will continue to be this divisive church. So where we find ourselves is we are a church divided. And I will be so bold to say as we have two different religions under the same roof. That's a tough thing. It's hard to move forward when you have two different religions trying to work within the same space. So... We've already seen since 2019, the West has said they will not abide by the discipline, even though they were waiting to see what would happen at 2019. And they've still said they won't abide by it. And in fact, they will continue to protest. And the bishop, who is openly gay, will not step down, even though the judicial council ruled her out of order. But here's the problem. Why don't people say, why don't they just leave? Well, it's not that easy. We don't have Methodist police, and I don't want us to have Methodist police. (laughs) I believe a covenant is based on love and mutual understanding of who we are. And this is a broken covenant. It's hard to legislate your way out of a covenant. It's hard to enforce a covenant if one side doesn't want to be in agreement with it. And so this is what I hope for us moving forward. I want you to continue to pray for our church and the United Methodist Church. Second, hear this. I want you to be kind. Did you hear that? No side won. And there is deep hurt and pain on both sides. And those who saw what they hoped would happen didn't happen are hurting today. And I hope you'll be kind to those who disagree with you. This is not a season to gloat over anyone or any beliefs. This is a season to mourn and to grieve. And I give you permission to mourn and grieve. There were no winners at General Conference. So be kind. We will do this again in 2020. So between now and 2020, we are hoping that enough people on the left and the right now see that there is truly no way forward under the same roof. That can we agree to disagree and go our separate ways and bless the other side and say go in grace and go in peace. That's the hope and the prayer. But it's gonna take a lot of people on both sides swallowing their pride and not demanding that their way gets done, but being gracious and loving, even though they disagree. Where do we go from here? We're called to be faithful in where we are. I will say this, though. I believe our current book of discipline is correct. I believe all people are of sacred worth, that all are welcome in the church, gay and straight, But I also believe the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Scripture. That doesn't mean I hate those who disagree with me. It just means they disagree with me. And I can still love them. And I can still wish the best for them. And they're still in our church. And that's a good thing because we all are in need of Christ. And we are all sinners. And we are all growing in grace. We are all in the process of sanctification. And so it's not an easy issue. It's what I say is I hate to deal with issues. Uh, Issues get too black and white. Uh, But I do deal with people. And each individual is different in how they're dealing with their walk with God. And so that's what we'll continue to do as we move forward. That was a lot. So pray for us. Pray for the church. Pray for these leaders who are at churches that we will begin that process of helping each other go our separate ways.
because I don't want to continue to do this year after year after year. I think we're finally to the point, though. This is the hope. This is the dream. We're finally to the point, though, I think we will move forward, that uh, both sides have now realized, especially those on the left, the vote is not going to change, and it will continue to be divided. 53-47, 55-45, It will continue to be that way. For us to move forward, we have to bless the other side, release them, release each other, and move forward. That's going to take a lot of work this year, but I believe we'll get there. I will say it was a historic vote that took place. We are the only mainline denomination who has not changed our polity and our theology. Uh, All the others have changed over the past several decades. As many outside the church say, that is historic and that is amazing. But it's no reason to gloat. It's just a reminder that we are called to be faithful where we are that we are called to love one another, that we are called to make disciples. We're called to glorify God and worship, to grow in likeness of Jesus, and to give our lives in love of Jesus. So that's where we are. So where do we go from here? The best thing for us to do is take communion together, (laughs) to be reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that although we are sinners, God calls us to the table. He calls us to love and to live holy lives. And so I remind us this morning that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed by us, he took bread. He gave thanks to it. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took a cup, a cup of wine, and he blessed it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, this, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. When you drink it, remember me. And so, God, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, so that we who receive this gift may indeed receive you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.